All right. Why don't you guys take your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. I'm reading from the ESV. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, I prepared this message and I prepped to I prep a whole manuscript for verses 4 to 11, but as I continue to just soak myself in this pattern, just dive in a little bit deeper, and I was just digging up um, little things here and there, I started to come up with a lot of content. And, and so actually today I was, I was trying to figure out, okay, what should I do? And I have like all this stuff I want to share, but yet it's just going to make the message too long. And so I would... And so instead of preaching verses 4 to 11, I'm actually going to do verses 4 to 8. Sorry, verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7 instead. And, and I didn't have time to update my PowerPoint, so it's going to look like it's from verses 4 to 11. Um, but, I'm, but there's just so much here to unpack. There's so much, there's just such richness in this text. Um, and, and because Paul here is speaking so metaphorically, there's just, things to explain, things to, to cross-reference and, and to look at. And, and, and this is like a towel we just want to squeeze dry. And so, and so I'm going to split up this message into two parts. We're going to do verses 4 to 7 tonight, and I'm going to go ahead and finish the rest of my points um, from verses 8 to 11 next time we meet up. And so as we look upon this passage, this is indeed part two still. Last time we looked upon part one, which is from verses one to three. And, and I, I read that as part of the scripture reading because it provides the context. We looked upon in verses one to three, upon the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is a day that was prophesied in the Old Testament a day of great judgment that will fall upon the earth. It's, an, it's a day of destruction where God's wrath will be poured out, poured out upon this world for its sins. And, and, and as we looked upon this, I, last time I, I, I explained what the day of Lord is biblically. We looked upon different passages, especially upon the book of Joel, right, which is focused upon the day of the Lord. And, 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 and what we came to the conclusion was, while we don't know when this will, day will come, we don't know the date, and it's a pointless exercise to try to figure out the date, God has kept it hidden. I, I did try to show you guys where am I fall in, in the realm of the end times. And, and I just want to do some quick, quick review here, right? And so 
the day of the Lord, where it fits in my eschatological view, which is my understanding of the end times, and my understanding of the end times comes from a premillennial perspective. And, and I know there's like big words here. And so if you have any questions about what any of these stuff mean, uh, just, just let me know. Um, and, and we could talk about, we can have a whole side conversation about that. We can just, you know, shoot the breeze about end times. But I, so I don't have the time to go through every view, but we're just, so we're going to talk about this view that I, I hold to. All right. So the premillennial perspective, what in a nutshell, what it is, is that it views the prophecies of the end times as future events, as future events that will come upon this world one day. And so these events haven't ha hasn't happened yet. Right? Other views may think that, you know, right now may be the tribulation time. Right? And that's some ways that some ways that other people have interpreted those views, but and and I just don't hold to that. And but at the same time, I'm not super dogmatic about this premillennial view either. Like I'm not saying people who hold to like an all millennial view or post millennial view, they're I'm not saying they're reading their Bibles upside down or anything like that. I it just it's, this is just the way when I read scripture and study scripture, this is the conclusions I come down to. And again, if you want to talk about that, we can have a whole side conversation about this. So if you take a look at this diagram that I, I drew, I just want to help you visualize everything. Currently right now, I believe we are in the church age. That is the present time. Right? And, and so we have all this here. And then we have then um, the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom, new heaven, new earth. We talked about the rapture in our study through First Thessalonians, right? That was First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. And, and there the rapture, it's debated about when it actually fall, when it happens. But, it, it, but most scholars agree it's going to happen sometime around the Great Tribulation, whether before, in the middle, or after. And then the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will happen in these three potential spots. And some people argue it may happen in all three. Maybe the day of the Lord doesn't refer to a single day. Maybe it's talking about a sequence of events. And, and there's good arguments for that too. And, and, and so there's different ways to see when this day of the Lord will actually happen. And I argue last time that I think that the day of the Lord will happen after the Great Tribulation, right before the Millennial Kingdom. Um, but I can see how we can also gain other perspectives biblically. But what we, what we do know, what we do know is that the day of the Lord is the coming judgment against this world. And we, the world, has been warned. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will be upon us. Just be upon us without us knowing it. The question then remains, as we looked at this last time, the question remains is this. What must we as believers do with this knowledge? Why should we care about this whole concept of the day of the Lord? Why? Why talk about this? And the answer, as God seems to reveal to us throughout his scriptures, the answer is that we must be ready. We must be prepared. In, in, a, in First Peter, the Apostle Peter constantly tells us to gird up our loins, meaning we, we need to be dressed for battle. We need to be alert and watchful, to be steel-minded, unwavering, so that we will not be caught off guard. This is what Paul's addressing here in First Thessalonians. And in chapter 5, it's all about what it means to be ready, to be on alert, to be prepared. And from verses 4 through 11, Paul lays out five key principles for helping us to have the right mindset, to have the right motivation for being prepared as the day the Lord draws closer. And like I said, I won't be able to cover all five principles, so... We're only going to cover two tonight. Right. And so the first principle that we're going to look at is from verses 4 to 5. is to remember your identity. We must remember our identity. 
And if you look at chapter, if we look at verse four here, it begins with the word but. Meaning there's a contrast being made. Paul here is talking about us being different from what he just explained in verses one to three. In verses 1 through 3, Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Then in verse 4, he says, but, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. What we see here, we see here is that Paul, Paul says that we should be aware like when the day of the Lord comes, yes, we don't know when it will come, but it will not catch us by surprise. We will be ready. We will be prepared. We will not be caught with our pants down. But, but you are not in darkness. Paul here, he uses this word darkness. Right, he uses this word darkness, and, 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 he's ta- and he's, he's comparing that to the fact that the thief will be coming in the night. And, and now he's using this word darkness. And Paul, as you follow his train of thought throughout this passage, he seems to be taking a metaphor, and it just and it jumps to all these other different kind of topics in his mind. And, and so I want to take some time to show you guys how Paul, what Paul exactly is thinking. What is his logic? And so he said here first that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he's thinking nighttime. It's dark. You won't be able to see this thief coming. And then he says, but you are not in darkness. doesn't mean that we never, you know, it's nighttime right now. We are, you know, in darkness in a way. Paul here is speaking metaphorically. He's now thinking, no, we have, we have understanding of what's going to come. We are not in darkness. Instead, we are in the light. We see the truth. We know about God and his plans. We know that there's this day that's coming, a day of great wrath and great judgment. So he says here, that you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Why? Because of our identity. Verse 5, he says, For you are all children of light, children of day. Paul, again, here, playing off his metaphors, right? When he's speaking about light, speaking about day, he's, in his mind, he was thinking about night and darkness. Now he's thinking about light and day. And he's making this contrast, this contrast between those who are kept in the dark and those of us who are in the light. And yet, let us think about this. What does it mean that we are all children of light? What does it mean that we are children of day? In, in the Greek, the, the word is literally translated as sons of light. Sons of light. But we know that, we know that Paul in Scripture, they don't, they don't just mean we are all like male boys in the light. It means that we are all sons and daughters in the light, which is why the ESV translated as children. We are children of light. What we see here, what we see here is that we are, we are different from those who are stuck in the darkness. And, and we can get a clearer picture of this when we turn me to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 36. And, we're, and in, this, in this sermon, we're going to be flipping around a lot to different passages. So just keep finger in 1 Thessalonians. And, and we'll, just, we'll, 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 be, we'll be flipping pages a lot here. In John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 36. Well, in the, the context of this passage is that Jesus here, he's talking to a crowd of people and he's explained to them that he must be lifted up. He must die. They don't understand. They don't understand. They are blinded to this truth. They are in the darkness. And his and the problem is, is this. 
they, they just don't believe what Jesus is saying about himself. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But if we do believe, this is what Jesus says. John chapter 12, verse 36 says, While you have the light, I mean, while you have me here on earth, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Sons of light here, children of light, are people who believe in Christ. There are people who, who have their faith fully set upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now let's think about this term a little bit more and just kind of break it down. Sons, when we, the, in the Greek and Hebrew, in, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, they, they constantly call people sons of blank. And if it's a name, like their father, it, it demonstrates a very close relationship, right? an intimate relationship. Be called you know, a son of know, David, son of Joseph. So there's an intimate relationship. But there's also times in both the Old Testament and New Testament where they'll use this phrase sons of peace or sons of destruction, the sons of thunder. And this is terms used throughout scripture. And, and when it's used with this kind of characteristic, it's saying that this characteristic, this character is a dominant feature of that person. He is almost in a way controlled by this character. Right? Someone who is called a son of peace, meaning this person is just a peacemaker. Peace is just what he does. Is he's driven, controlled by peace. It dominates who he is. And so then to be called sons of light, they come sons of light because sons of the day is to say that light defines who we are. The day defines who we are. And, and we can see here that we should have a close relationship with what it means to be light and what it means to be day. But what, so then what does it mean to be light? Return with me real quick to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, we have here someone who, someone here who's described as light, God himself. John chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is light, and in God there is no darkness. Well, and what we know about God as being light is that he is this pure, undefiled light, no blemish in him at all. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, meaning if we say we are sons of light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what does it mean, these son of light? It means that we walk with God. We have a close relationship with God. And that in that close relationship with God, in our union with Christ, we also then have fellowship with one another. We're all part of this family of God, all sons of light. And we belong in this because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin so that what defines us is no longer the darkness of sin, but the purity of light. We get here a beautiful picture, a contrast between what it means to be in the darkness and what it means to be in the light. And, and Paul, back in First Thessalonians, his mind is just kind of jumping different places. And this is this is what he's talking about. At first, he was talking about darkness as just being 
blind, being unknown, to being surprised by this thief. But then this, this metaphor of darkness now makes him think about the, the, the evil of darkness, kind of, you know, darkness back then. Uh, well, throughout, throughout, this, throughout the Greek times, um, the New Testament times, right? Darkness was always used to describe something that's, that, that sinners would, would do. Right, it's describing something that's hideous, something that's sinister. Um, we even think about that today, right? Things that are done in the dark, things that are done in the secret, are things that you that we should be shameful of. But but we are children of light, meaning our works are exposed. We have no shame because there's nothing to hide. We do the work of God and that light is what defines us. But as we continue down this metaphor, we continue down this metaphor, we, we begin to see how Paul here, he's, he's also, as he's thinking about darkness and light, and he's thinking about sin and purity, but he's also kind of, he's also thinking about how we are to have clear minds. Meaning light reveals truth. And so when we're in the light, we actually see clearly that our eyes are no longer blind, that we can take off the shades and we have the vast ability to see the colors, the, the, the small details, everything becomes clear to us. You see, the, the world may think that Christianity blinds us, the world may claim that scripture suppresses human freedom and restricts the way we think, that we are closed-minded, we're believers. But they couldn't be further away from the truth. The Bible is a lamp to our feet. Jesus is light of the world. In other words, when you believe in Christ, you begin to see the world more clearly. We begin to see that this world that we live in is God's creation and we are his creatures. And we begin to see that what sin does, what our sin does, our sin pushes us away from our God, away from our creator. Our sin distorts the truth and hides us from the light. Paul says here, that you are all children of light, children of day. And he follows that up in contrast that he says, we are not of the night or of the darkness. We are not of the night or the darkness. Paul here, again, talking about character descriptions. We should not have anything that relates to the darkness that defines our character, that defines who we are. Well, what are these kind of characteristics? If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we can see a clear picture of what Paul means by, by walking in the light compared to darkness. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, starting at verse, we'll start with verse 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So people who are defined by disobedience against God, sons of disobedience. Verse 7, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all the good and right, all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. What we have here then 
And if you read through the rest of Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see how Paul talks about what it means to walk in the light. And he gets into specific details, like what does it mean to be a godly husband and a godly wife? What does it mean to be a godly parent and children, to be a slave and a master in a godly way? And all these things that he describes are how to walk in the light so that you are defined by that. When we are called children of light, when we are called sons of light, it means we see clearly. It means that we see the world for what it is. We see all, all of the sin in this world, and all the evil in this world, just the things that are broken, and, and we see that we need a Savior. We see that we need God to come back, save us from all of this. But we also see the world in this sin, and we see that this world, there's, there's a need of judgment. Because right now, when we look upon the world, it seems like evil prospers. Those who are good die. Where is the justice in all that? Where is the justice? And therefore, when we think about then the day of the Lord, and we think about what that means, we see that the day of the Lord helps us understand where this world is destined to. That there is a vindication coming where God will proclaim himself as king and judge over the world. There will be punishment, consequences for sin. For the saints, there will be redemption. So coming back to the first Thessalonians, when Paul says here that we are children of light, children of day, we are not of the night or the darkness. And he's talking about this within the context of the day of the Lord, a future event that's coming. It means that this whole concept of the day of the Lord helps us understand this present reality better. Let me show you what I mean. Because you see, if you're, if you're like me um, and you grew up in the church, I never was fully that interested in the end times. It was always really confusing to me. Didn't, didn't know why it mattered. Didn't know why, how it impact me now. I mean, if this is something that God has in the future, if it comes, it will come. But as I continue to dig through scripture and become a bit more seasoned in life, I've come to realize just how important it is for us, how important it is for us to know what the Bible says about the end times. I mean, there's a reason why so much of scripture talks about what is going to come. And so studying the end times, it, it sobers our understanding of reality, of this present world. It helps us see clearly. It helps us see as sons of light, not of darkness. You see, when we see this world, and as much as we enjoy this world, and we should, this is God's creation. He meant it for good. We also know that this is not the end game. You see, the end times helps us place our values, our hearts in the, in the eternal things, in the things of heaven and not in the things of earth. The end times helps us color why we work so hard, why we do our jobs every day. Why we work hard on building up our marriages, our families, why we get up each morning, why we go to sleep at night. We, we, the end times helps us in understanding this because as we understand the end times, we then live now as light in this darkened world so that more people can be saved. Show people 
just what it means to live as children of light, to live in a way that pleases God, to show them that this world is not the end-all, be-all, that there is a greater eternal value waiting for us in heaven, and that treasure can be yours as well. Consider for a moment the pandemic we're in and how the end times helps us understand the situation we're in with this global virus threatening us all. The the end times remind us that this pandemic that's going on is just a groan. It's just a groaning, a warning sign, a birth pain, a sign that there is a greater disaster awaiting for us ahead. See, a situation like this pandemic, it awakens the church from its sleep. It brings people Unbelievers and believers to question life and death. This, and so now is the time for the church to be alert and awake. Now is the time for the church to be prepared, sober-minded, to share the gospel of light, to share the gospel of truth to this world. And this is what the gospel is all about. It's about bringing people out of the darkness into the light. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, It says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And we get here then that we no longer belong in this domain of darkness, and yet we still live here on this world. So what does Paul mean by this verse? He means that we no longer think in this darkened way. We no longer live and are characterized by darkness. We are now in the kingdom of his son, kingdom of light. We have a clear perception of reality. And we, and we follow this, we, we follow this line of thought and we think about this kingdom that we're now in that belongs to Christ. And we look then and we turn with me to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, when we take a look at this, and this, this is amazing, right? We're now in this kingdom and this kingdom is not this physical kingdom because we're, you know, we still live here on earth. This kingdom here is talking about how we think. How do we how do we perceive this world? How do we live in this world? And it says here in chapter 12. I mean, let's start here. Let's start with verse, start with verse 19. In verse 19, this is a parable about a rich fool who said, I'm going to store up all this earthly treasures for myself. And so it's in the middle of the parables. So I'm just going to start there. Um, and, and so this, this rich fool is talking to himself. He says, he says verse, um, verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have an ample goods laid up for years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20, God speaks. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And in verse 21, the point of this parable, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so what we see here is that when we lay treasures up for ourselves, they will be gone. They'll be destroyed because everything in this world is temporary. That's the day the Lord makes us realize that, that everything in this world is temporary. So then what then do we do? We keep reading Luke chapter 12. Now, you know, and as he keeps going, Jesus here then speaks about our anxiety, our worries. When we worry about all these little things, but how do we alleviate that? How do we think through all this? How do we live in this world when all these things matter to us? Like what we eat, how do we live? How do we buy things? How do we survive? And in verse 31, Luke chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, don't, he says, don't worry. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. 
In other words, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Seek that kingdom. Put your value, your eternal worth into the kingdom of God and the rest will be added to you. Everything here about this gospel and what it does for us, what it means for us to live as children of life, is to demonstrate to the world that we have an eternal hope. A hope that doesn't make sense because a hope that is transcendent. A hope in an invisible God for a future treasure. One that is laid up in heaven for us. We see the reality of this still in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 now. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, when we are now in the kingdom of light, we have a clear perspective upon this world, the temporariness of the possessions we have here on earth compared to the eternal value we have in heaven it helps us live differently. If we didn't understand the end times, if we didn't understand the day of the Lord, we lose this perspective. We lose motivation. We, we, and, and, and when we lose those things, we start losing perspective of heaven, we then begin to fill up our hearts with earthly things. Earthly things with these temporarily fleeting objects. We fill, the, we fill our hearts up with stuff that wasn't meant to be worshipped. My friends, let us be children of light, children of the day, people who have a clear view of what God is preparing for this world and for you. When we, when we have this then, this perspective, when we have this perspective, this is what Paul calls the secret to Christian contentment. The secret to Christian contentment is to find Christ as your all-satisfying treasure in all things. The second principle that we'll look upon here, back in First Thessalonians, is to solidify your disciplines. Verses 6 to 7, this is playing off what we just read in verses 4 to 5. For because we are, our identities are sons of light, sons of the day, Paul then says, this is what you must do in verse 6. He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul here uses the terms awake and sober. Awake and sober. Again, he's using them as metaphors. And they're metaphors for being morally alert and self-controlled. Morally alert and self-controlled. Let's take a closer look at, at these words and what they mean. Right? First, we see here the word awake. And verse 6, you know, let, us, let us keep awake. And awake is actually used twice in this passage. In verse 10, if you jump down real, real, real quick there, verse 10, it talks about who... Those who die, uh, Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And, and so the metaphor for awake is actually used here um, in verse 10 about speaking alive, but that is not what 
Paul is using this metaphor here in verse 6 means. And I want you guys to see a difference because Paul, is, again, his mind is just is, is flowing. He's using these metaphors and they're jumping from one topic to another. And in verse 6, Paul here, when he talks about keeping away, he doesn't mean keep alive. He means to be alert, to be watchful. And we know this because there's a contrast here with what it means to be asleep. When it means to be asleep in, in verse 7. And, and, and the, the difference here, here is, is relating back to his train of thought of what he meant with the whole idea of the thief in the night. Right? If we know that a thief is coming at night, we will be up and about on our guards waiting for that thief to catch him in the act. But we don't know the thief is coming. He will be asleep and will be caught off guard. So this is Paul's train of thought here. He's telling us to be alert, to be watchful. Turn with me real quick to Mark chapter 13. We'll get a deeper look into what this concept here contains. In Mark chapter 13, in verse 32, Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus here is speaking again about this day of the Lord that's going to happen. And he says in starting in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, right? No one knows when this day of the Lord is going to come, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So with this whole, I don't know, this, this, this whole shroudedness about when this day of the Lord come, in verse 33, Jesus tells us, this is what we must do then. Be on guard. Keep. Awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and put his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What Jesus here is saying, he's saying that we cannot take a day off. We cannot take a day off from living as sons of light. We cannot take a day off from pursuing holiness. Jesus connects our watchfulness to our morality. We must continue to live as children of light. And we are to slip. That's when temptation comes in. Right at the Garden of Gethsemane, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying. And as Jesus was praying, he had some disciples with him, and they fell asleep. And, and know what Jesus says to them. Um, Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. Right? These disciples fell asleep and Jesus, you know, he, he rebuked them. He told them this. Chapter, Matthew 26 verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch. Be awake, be alert, and pray that you may not enter temptation. We are not careful. If we are not watchful, if we're not constantly being vigilant, the temptation of the world will sneak into your heart. It will draw you away from Christ. We have to be on guard at all times. In Proverbs, Old Testament now, Proverbs chapter 4, Verse 23 tells us, tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance, meaning keep alert, guard your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We have to continue to keep watch of everything that we bring into our hearts, watch over our lives. Watch over every moment we're weak. Pray 
constantly. This leads then into the second word that we're going to look into, which is the word sober. What does it mean to be sober? It's, it's a metaphor again, right? Being contrasted with being drunk. It's a metaphor for being self-controlled, to be clear-minded. Again, something to do with the mind. When you think about being drunk, it's to lose control, right? When, you, when you're drunk, you lose control of your body, your words, your train of thoughts. When you're drunk, your mind is not clear. And so, and so when we're talking about then self-control, I'm going to keep in mind again, we're going to keep in mind as, we, as, this, as, this, as this is being contrasted to being drunk, right? When you're drunk, you're, the self-control isn't the problem just when you're drunk. It doesn't start there. Self-control, the lack of self-control happens before you reach the point of drunkenness. And so when Paul says here, be sober, be sober, it means to be self-controlled from the beginning to the end. It's not saying be self-controlled when temptation hits. It's not saying to be self-controlled whenever, you know, I, I see something wrong has happened. Someone's enticing me to do something morally bad. That's when I'll exercise self-control. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying be sober, self-controlled through and through. This begins first and foremost with your mind. To be clear-headed. We see more of this in First Peter. Turn me to First Peter, First Peter chapter one. First Peter talks about being sober-minded. He repeats that throughout this letter, right? In First Peter chapter one, in verse thirteen, this is the first time he tells his audience to be sober-minded. First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here he's telling us to be prepared, to, to gird up our loins, to be alert, to be watchful, and to be sober-minded, to have our minds clear and focused. What do we focus on? We set our hopes fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, he just keeps talking. He, we keep following his train of thought here, right? He says, as obedient children, Children, again, this description of being a child of God, a son of light, as being children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former darkness. Do not be conformed to the passions, meaning don't let your emotions control you. Isn't that not a description of being drunk? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, verse 15, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And Peter here, he, he warns his audience to continue to be sober-minded, to have our minds mentally prepared. Why? Because we are battling spiritual enemies. We're looking to make our minds unclear, unfocused upon God so that we don't have our hopes set upon Christ. Right? When we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, we look at verse 8. Peter here again uses the word sober-minded. And he's in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to be on guard all the time. We need to live our lives with clear minds. So let me ask you, what is the state of your mind right now? When is the last time you thought deeply about God? Behold his glory and majesty in your quiet times. When was the last time you really, really dived, consumed yourself into God's word? Did this past week, 
I, I, I was listening to Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary. And he does this daily podcast called The Briefing. I highly recommend that to you guys. I, I listen to it every day. And, and, and in the briefing this past week, he, one day he spoke upon the topic of boredom. Boredom. And, he, and we struggle with boredom, right? Especially in the midst of this pandemic, we, we can get easily bored. Well, some of us. Some of us are, you know, have to trace around running children or something. Boredom. If you try to think about boredom culturally, right, in society, boredom is actually a recent phenomenon. It's a recent phenomenon. Have you ever considered what, you know, what the people 200 years ago, were they bored? What does boredom look like for them? Now, I'm not saying that no one was ever bored before. It's, but if you think about where we're at today, right, think about the technology, how it has improved our quality of life, meaning we can get what we want easier without much work. And with that, with that technology, we find ourselves with more time on our hands. And sometimes we just don't know what to do with that time. And while we're gaining more time, at the same time, the rise of digital entertainment makes it really easy for us to fill in that empty space, like that extra time that we have to spare. And it fills up that empty space with mindless consumption. I'm not saying entertainment is a bad thing, but there are side effects to it. And one of those side effects is the ability, the lost ability to think clearly and deeply about the issues of life. Our knowledge of, of this world and, 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 and everything that's happening around it, sometimes it just flashes before us. Whatever information we read online, whatever social media produces, whatever these news outlets, news media bring out as headlines, it just flashes before our eyes and, and, and it's trying to capture our attention. And we find it, we end up finding it harder to sit quietly in our room to contemplate upon the turmoil of our hearts, to contemplate upon our utter need for Christ. And when we open up the Bible, we end up scanning through it like we're reading headlines on a, on a webpage, you know, we're just quick glances. Friends, Christians, Christians shouldn't be bored because we should have so much to think about. We should have so much to think about. We have this word of God that's so deep in, in knowledge and wealth and wisdom that we, we spend all of eternity studying. We, we should be filling our minds with this truth. And so when, when we're not talking about here staying awake and being sober in our day-to-day, it means that we must begin by guarding our minds from overconsumption and allowing the space and the time for our souls to meditate upon God's word, to contemplate about our lives with Christ. This should be what separates us from the world. As, as Paul here has been saying, he, um, Paul here has been saying over and over again in First Thessalonians that we need to be different from the world, and he repeats himself here. He says in verse six, First Thessalonians chapter five, verse six: "So then, let us not sleep as others do." Meaning, don't be like those who are of the night. Don't be like those who are of the darkness. Be awake. Be sober. Be self-controlled and clear-minded, aware of what's going on. Be children of lights of the day. Now, let us consider the dark side for a moment. We're just going to take a look. What what is this this dark side? What does this look like? When we look at verse 7 here, for instance, Verse 7, when Paul writes, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who get drunk, are drunk at night. What does that mean? What is Paul here referring to? And the first thing we notice here is that 
these things were are taking place at night. And, and, and night back then is, you know, it has a negative connotation, right? They didn't, back then they didn't have electricity like we do. So, you know, there's, it's hard to see at night. They didn't have lights, you know, a flashlight to go around. They, it was dark. And so when it was dark, it, it usually represented a connotation of something sinister happening. And there's fear when they talk about darkness, about things that happen at night. So this is a negative connotation here. And again, Paul here is using these metaphors to, to talk about morality. To sleep. To sleep here is to, then to be morally indifferent. To be morally indifferent to issues going on around us. It's to say, it's to say for instance, we look around us and we're like, everyone everyone should have the right to their own perception of morality. That, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of thinking these people might have. But that's not morality. That's being indifferent to morality. Right? To say that there's no such thing as moral issues, that everyone can have their own morality, that's being indifferent to what is actually true. Right? The people who say there's no morality, just, if we just, again, we're children of light and we want to see this world clearly. The people who are arguing that there is no objective morality, they're the same people who are going out protesting on the streets these days. I mean, they're protesting about something that's moral, isn't it? And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying whether or not these protests are right or wrong. I, you know, things are a little more complicated now with kind of breaking down to different pieces. But I want us as children of light to think soberly, clear-minded about what these people are doing these days. How are they reacting? What's driving them? When you become indifferent to morality, everything ends up becoming about how you feel, about whether or not you personally think something is right or wrong, you become the judge. And and what ends up happening is that your emotions dictate your reactions. And that's what it means to be drunk. Be controlled by our emotions. When you're drunk, you lose control of your thoughts. You lose control of your emotions and they instead drive you. You do whatever you feel like doing because whatever you feel like doing suddenly becomes right. For instance, in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verse 42. Luke chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus here gives another parable. And he says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 42, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and the wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find do, so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But, and here's where we get this idea of drunkenness. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. See, when we lose perception, when we lose sight of the day of the Lord, we start to allow our emotions, our, and I'm talking about sinful desires, control, our appetite, control our cravings, control our reactions and what we do. But when we are self-control, when we're sober and we're awake, we can direct that desire and set it upon eternal things, set it upon heavenly things, to feed ourselves with the word of God and have our hope fully known in Christ.
guys, how do you live your life? How do you think through all that you do? Perhaps some of you here today, joining us tonight or hearing this, and, and you find maybe some of these depictions of morality, of darkness, of night, the way you live, and maybe they describe you. And, and I, I want to say, first of all, that I understand we're, we're all sinful beings in the sense that we all, myself too, struggle with desires to do whatever I want, to, to get whatever my heart desires. Right? It's, it's easy to get caught up in that. But, but let me ask you this. Is what you want and what you feel always right? Or does that make you sound self-centered? You see, we're looking here upon God's word. And God's word here is truth. God's word is a lamp upon our feet. It's, it provides for us a clear picture of what our hearts are like, what this world is like. And then there's a reason why the world hates the light, right? John chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that men love the darkness and hate the light because the light reveals their evil works. The light reveals the truth. And that truth tells us that there is a God and his decrees, his law, his word is what defines morality. Morality then. It's not about us, nor is it about you. When we talk about morality, it's always about God. To be awake, to be sober of this truth, is to live according then to the moral decrees of God. And if you do not know God personally, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and perhaps you're listening to all this, you're wondering, how then can I become a son of light? How then can I become a children of the day? I want to belong to this kingdom. And let me tell you that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died for your sins. He took upon, he took upon the punishments and the consequences that you deserve, that the day of the Lord that is to come, when judgments arrive, when it was meant for you, Christ took that. In Luke chapter 36, sorry, Luke chapter 23. I don't even know where I got 36 from. Luke chapter 23. In the description and the narrative about the cross, Right before Jesus is about to die, Luke says, writes this. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when we look at this passage, we see right before Jesus died, darkness fell upon the land. And, and while scholars may debate if this was an eclipse, if you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the book of Joel, and we read about the day of the Lord, and one of the signs that the day of the Lord is about to come says, tells us that the sun will be blot out, and darkness will fall upon the land. And we will know when that sign comes, judgment will arrive. But when we look here in Luke, that when darkness covered, the whole land was covered in darkness and the sun's light failed. Judgment did come, but did not come upon us. It fell upon Christ, God's own son. 
he took upon the wrath and the judgment meant for us. If you want to be a true light, you believe in this Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. And when you put your faith in him, when you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ, you will become children of light. Your minds will be free from sin, no longer blinded. You will see the glory of God and you will be awake and sober for the very first time. This is such a great truth. This is what we live for. This is what it's all about. And while, and while the gospel count is not the day of the Lord, it is a future time that will come, it reminds us that there is indeed a wrath coming. But today is a day of grace. Today is a day when we have time still to believe. Today is a day when we can still sober up our minds and think clearly about the eternal things. Today is a day when we continue to prepare ourselves for when the great judgment will come in the future. With that, I'll go ahead and preach the rest of this passage in First Thessalonians next time. Let me go ahead and close us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. A grace that we do not deserve. Where, Lord, our sins require judgment. And yet, judgment did come. But it came upon Christ who took the wrath for us. And because of his work, we are now free. Free. Free from our sins. Free from the desires that plague us. Free to worship you. To live as children of light. To pursue holiness. To be sober-minded. To be able to see the world as it is. Let us then, Lord, be thankful. Be thankful for all that you have given to us, for this great gift of salvation. Let us be thankful for Christ every day. Because every day is a day when we continue to dwell, Lord, in your presence. To commune with you in your word. To pray to you. And to live as a light in this world. To see more people saved. To see more people come to see the truth. God, let us, children of light, let us be your disciples, your ambassadors. Let us continue to carry forth the tasks that you have given to us. Let us bring the gospel to the world and warn them of a future of a future judgment that's coming. Let us show them that there is a better way in Christ. Be with us in our discussion. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, thank you, Gabe. All right, as we...